Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we revere your word as from you for your glory, for our good. Even these words, especially these words. And pray that you would help us today have eyes to see and ears to hear with the souls in our chests that we might know you and be encouraged and be convicted and be helped in our state and in our lot in life. We ask God for your help that you would work through your word and by your spirit in this room this moment for your glory and for our joy in Jesus name. Amen. Well, we do some strange things as a society. A lot of strange things. And one of them, and I hope this is not one of your favorite things. If it is, I will apologize. Zero. I've never been to one of these. Maybe you have been to an escape room. If you are unfamiliar with the idea of the escape room, let me explain to you how I at least understand that it works. You are bored. You pay a total stranger to lock you in a room at about $40 a person with your friends or co-workers or family where you are challenged to find your way out and escape the room that you have been locked in. Well, there are various things that we do when we are bored. Asking someone else to lock us in a room so that we can try to escape, I think, is one of the more comical Job is in a real-life escape room with his friends. Escape rooms can be fun. I can imagine the clues, the camaraderie that comes, the memories, the laughter, the arguments that you could have with a loved one or a co-worker. But when you get out of those escape rooms, you walk out and the sun hits your face again, And you get back in your same car, and you go back to your same home. And while you might not have felt the stress and the anxiety and the suffering and the trouble that's real in your life for a moment, when you come back home, you might realize, well, we haven't really escaped that, but for a moment. Job and his friends are, as it were, in an escape room together. Job's 500 oxen and donkeys and his servants were slain by the sword. Fire from heaven fell on all of Job's 7,000 sheep. His 3,000 camels were stolen. His seven sons, his three daughters, were killed in a tornado or a hurricane-like storm. God has even permitted Satan to strike Job with sores from the sole of his feet to the very tip of his head, which he chose to find relief by grabbing shards of clay to scrape himself as he sat in ashes 
morning. Well, how do you escape that? How do you escape that reality? How do you escape when your suffering is in your very body? Job's friends turned out not to be friends. It's kind of like Ronald Reagan said about the government, the most nine most terrifying words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Job's friends have found Job in his suffering and they're trying to help him escape. Maybe you've had some well-intentioned friends try to help you escape your suffering or your sin. Maybe you have others around you that you know are desperate in suffering, physical, spiritual, emotional, relational ailments. And they're looking at you wishing they could escape. Maybe they're trying to escape and maybe you're trying to escape with escape rooms or movies or shopping or sex or money or work. Just escape the suffering. Well, Job's friend has an idea about how to get out. And when Job hears it, he's not very happy about it. There's actually a disagreement in the escape room about how to get out of this suffering. And then Job has a wild imagination, an idea. You couldn't even can't even think of, could possibly be true about how you could get out of this suffering. Look first at chapter 11, verse 4 through 6. As Marilyn mentioned, we're covering a four chapters, one of the largest unit sections in the discussion between Job and his friends. So my goal today is not to read every verse in Job 11 through 14, but to rightly present its ideals to you. Three things from Job's friend, three ideas about how to get out of this. First thing is to make sure Job knows this is his fault and he deserves worse than this, as if that would be helpful. Job eleven four through 6, For you say my doctrine is pure and I am clean in God's eyes. You didn't do anything to get yourself here. But oh, that God would speak and open His lips to you, and that He would tell you the secrets of wisdom. And then Zophar claims to know those secrets of wisdom, for He is manifold in understanding. Know then, you need to know, I know, Job. Know this revelation from God, that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. You think this is bad, it should be Worse, and this is Zophar's deep wisdom. Now, Job nor Zophar have no idea what has gone on in heaven between God and Satan in Job chapters 1 through 3. That this is of God, and God permitted Satan to take these things and cause this suffering. Still, Zophar claims to have some special knowledge, some secrets of wisdom for Job. 
And his secret is this, that God exacts from you less than you deserve. You think that this situation is bad, Job? Let me tell you something from the deep secrets of God. You deserve worse. Worse than this. Is this true? God has not given me, you, us, everything that we deserve. It is true. God has not given you everything that you deserve for your sin. God has not given me everything that I deserve for my sin. Our sin against God far outweighs any punishment that He exacts in this life. Why? Because God is the creator of all mankind. And God created us in holiness and perfection and righteousness in Adam and Eve, but we took the life that God gave us, the breath in our nostrils, and we spoke lies and we used our minds and our hearts to believe lies and to reject God and sin. What Rachel read for us this morning is that the wages of sin is death. That's the equal payment. That's what you deserve is death. So is it a deep, deep hidden wisdom that all men suffer less than they deserve? Well, it might not be common knowledge, but it is true all through Scripture. Think about your suffering this way. Is this everything that I deserve from my sin? No, the wages of sin is death. So today, might we just pray and ask that God would help us get it deep down in our souls that while we are alive, while we still have breath in our lungs and breathe and think and laugh and play in escape rooms, that we have not yet exacted what we deserve from God. Think about what you deserve from God Do you own your life? Did you make your life? Did you create your life? Did you earn your birth? Did you choose your mother? Did you earn your first cries out of the womb? What did you do to motivate God to make you? We did not even exist in existence, in reality, until God joined and created a soul in the conception of you in the womb And God created every one of us, all mankind, to be pure and holy and like Him, to be righteous and fill the earth with His likeness and His glory. Is that what you've done with your life so well? What do we deserve from God but His just wrath and death? Trevin Wax put it this way, hell It's full of people who think they deserve heaven. Heaven will be full of people who know that they deserve hell. Is Zophar right? Doctrinally, of course he is. Doctrinally, he is right. Job and all of us, because of our sin, every man deserves more than we have as long as we are alive because the wages of sin is death. But Zophar does not apply this doctrine correctly. This becomes, we see, a copy and paste from the other friend's counsel, which is simply, you're you're in the suffering, Job, don't worry about it. If If you'll just do good, God will do good to you. Be good, God will be good to you. He'll he'll give you good. 
So he just gives a copy and paste moralistic answer, chapter 11, verse 13 through 19. The second part of Zophar's counsel to get out of this. Be good, and God will give you good things. If you prepare your heart, you will search out, stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away. You, you just stop sinning. And let not injustice dwell in your tents. Make sure your house is clean. Surely then you will lift up your face without blemish. You will be secure and not fear. You will forget your misery. You will remember it as waters that have passed away. And your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning. And you will feel secure because there is hope. And you will look around and take your rest in security. You will lie down and none will make you afraid. Many will court your favor. You can almost hear the sighs of exasperation from Zophar in round three of how do we get out of this. Just put the bad things away and you'll be safe from trouble, Job. This will all be water under the bridge for you and God. And then perhaps Zophar's most disturbing answer. The only escape for the wicked, Job, is death. Chapter 11, verse 20, Zophar ends by saying that the eyes of the wicked, those who keep sinning, Job, the eyes of the wicked will fail. All way of escape will be lost to them. And their hope is to breathe their last. Job, you say you want to die. Job's been saying he wants to die and wishes that he hadn't been alive since his first morning in Job chapter 4. You say you want to die. I get it, Job, Zophar says. I, I get that you want to die because those who are wicked and they're suffering God's destruction in their lives because of their sin, that's exactly how they sound. There's no way of escape for them, Job, but death. So it makes sense for you to want to die. But Job, those who are righteous and who are good and who are nice, they have something to live for that they're comfortable, the blessed, the, the God-fearing people. Job, they're good. They'll have a good life and they'll be safe and they'll be comfortable and they'll have ease. And they're the ones who want to live, Job. They have something in this life to live for because they have done good, so God gives them good. A backhanded insult to Job. The wicked only have one way out. Only one escape of all the terror and tragedy and destruction that befalls them, Job. Their righteousness can't buy them anything, so the wicked, their only hope is to stop breathing. That's the only way out of God's suffering that He allows us to die. I know for a fact that there are, in a room this size, people who have thought this about themselves. The only way out is to die. The only way out of this suffering that I am in is to die. And it even begins to look good. But it's not. 
not only is it not an actual escape from suffering, it is the very judgment of God for our sin. Death is not the escape from our sin and suffering. Do not let Satan confuse you in this way. Death is the wages of sin. It's not running away from the suffering for our sin. It is to run right into it. So far, so shallow. Such low view of God. Such low view of Job. Job, the only way out for the wicked is to die. Well, not for Job. Zophar says, you deserve much worse than this. Be good, this will all go away. You're wanting to die, Job, wishing that you would die and thinking there's nothing left to do to die. That just shows how wicked you are. Job doesn't buy it. Look at Job's first response in Job 12, 13 through 25. I know that's not the first words of his response. But Job's first response is, we don't turn God like this. We don't control God like a knob on a machine so far. We don't just do good and get good. Look at Job 12, 13 through 25. With God our wisdom and might, Job says, he has counsel and understanding. If he tears down, none can rebuild. If he wants to do it, he does it. If he shuts a man in, he puts you in some room of suffering. No one can open it. You can't get out. If he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the land. With him are strength and sound wisdom. The deceived and the deceiver both are his. God's never tricked by anyone. You can't can't go to God and say, well, I know I've been a sinner, but here's all my, my good things. You can't deceive God. He leads counselors away stripped and he judges And judges, he makes fools. He looses the bonds of kings and binds a waistcloth on their hips. He leads priests away, stripped, usually in wonderfully brilliant garments, and overthrows the mighty. He deprives of speech those who are trusted. He takes away the discernment of the elders. He pours contempt on princes and loosens the belt of the strong. He uncovers the deeps out of the darkness. And he brings deep darkness to light. He makes nations great and He destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. He takes away understanding from the chiefs of the people of the earth. He makes them wander in a trackless, roadless, guideless waste. They grope in the dark without light and He makes them stagger like a drunken man. Zophar, your God is so small he's very cute and tame your God is not really a threat to anyone as long as they're quote unquote good a God who is well as long as you are good good to you can't do anything with you is bound by you 
is led around by you. But not for Job. Job says, God is not someone you can turn and control, that you can negotiate with. He, you're wanting me to go talk to God? He loosens the grips of kings from their thrones. I mean, just look at America. It's a tight grip. He doesn't just deal with people individually. He directs nations as a whole at a time. Moves them and destroys them. So Zophar, don't, don't show up talking about God as if he, he's just some cosmic, impersonal, moral algorithm where, where you insert some variables of goodness and you always get predictable answers back of not suffering every time. God brings deep darkness into light, Zophar. Make that make sense. Your ideas of God are not true to the world. Friends, do you know God like this? Have you settled in your heart that God is absolutely sovereign over all things? And that God does not need your permission to do anything with your life? Job's second response. Zophar, your sin to cause you to be terrified by God's majesty. Look at chapter 13, verse 9 through 12. Zophar, you, you think you know that I deserve worse than what I'm getting and that you have some deep, wonderful knowledge of God? Job 13, verse 9 Will it be well with you when he searches you out? Or can you deceive him as one deceives a man? He will surely rebuke you if in secret you show partiality. Will not his majesty terrify you? And the dread of him fall upon you. Your maxims are Proverbs of ashes. Use this sentence, please, in your real life when someone is giving you coffee mug proverbs that are not true. Just tell them, quote from Job, your maxims are proverbs of ashes. Your defenses are defenses of clay. Zophar, you talk so cool and calm and collected about God, but what are you going to do when God searches you out? When God comes to look through all of your heart and your mind and your life, friends, this is a question that you should consider about yourself. You think about the sin that you think about, you think the suffering that you have, but what's it going to be like when God comes to search you out? When God comes to search deep down in your heart and what you really love and what are your deepest motives. When God searches past going to church and voting and donating some money here and there. When God searches you out. The word here for searching out is the word for examine. Have you been to the doctor lately? Of course not. No one wants to go to the doctor. The doctor examines things. He finds things. He runs tests. 
What will it be like when God searches out your soul, your heart and your mind? God's knowledge is like a computerized tomography, a CT scan. Every layer, every direction, every depth, all the spaces, all the cavities, all of the bones, all of the blood, all of the vessels, all of the organs, God sees and searches out. How's your heart toward your church? How's your heart toward your pastors or your brothers and sisters? How's your heart toward your enemies? Toward money, toward your boss, toward God Himself. Pure, upright, blameless, holy, like God. How are are we to escape God's all-seeing and discerning judgment? Job's point is, You sound so cute and calm, collected, like if we do some good things, God's going to do good to us. But so far, His majesty ought to terrify us. Our great danger today in the West is not that we are too terrified of God. Our danger is that we think God's greatest attribute is that He is nice. Job realizes that Zophar has a lot of lofty ideas about God, but doesn't seem to be too bothered by the idea that God might see him. And remember what it's like when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and they, they didn't want to be searched out by God. They didn't want to be found by God. They hid themselves and we have been hiding ourselves with so many vices since we hid behind those first trees and bushes. And when we come stand before God, what is going to be our hope? When He looks past our sin to see the real us, He sees what we deserve. You have not really come to know God until you have felt some dread about Him. Let me say that again. You have not come to know God until you have felt some dread about Him. It is impossible to know Him otherwise. The very definition of knowing God in proverbial literature is to fear Him. In Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. That's what it means to be a Christian. Our first reaction to God in faith is not thankfulness for the cross. It is the Spirit-imbibed realization that we're in trouble. That we're in sin. And that, yeah, we've got some suffering going on in our lives. And we've got physical deformities and sickness and money problems and relationship problems. But when you come to see God in His holiness, you realize... I deserve worse than anything I've ever experienced in this life. And it ought to cause us to tremble and be fearful 
and know that when God searches us out, He sees us, we cannot deceive Him, and we are deserving of His just wrath, the death that we deserve because of our sin. Friends, this is why evangelism should not start in our day and age with this kind of sentence. Did you know that God loves you and sent His Son to die for you? Well, we're in a culture that thinks everyone is already supposed to love us exactly the way we are. So what a bonus for God to go ahead and, well, He loves us too. That's good to know. What is minimized in our culture, in our own homes, in the culture surrounding us, is that we ought to be terrified of God knowing our sin and how holy He is and how sinful we are. Job says you can't turn God like that. And so far you should be terrified at the majesty of God when He searches you out. And you don't sound like that to me. And then finally, Job imagines a way out. It's only something that Job can imagine at this point. But look in Job chapter 14, verse 7 through 12. Job's looking around the world, and this is what he sees. There is hope for a tree. Okay. No hope for Job, but there's hope for a tree. If it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its shoots will not cease, though its root grow old in the earth, and its stump die in the soil, yet, I love this sentence, at the scent of water. If it could just get a whiff of water, it will bud and put out branches like it was a young plant again. And just looking around, Job sees some things in the world that seem to die and live. Have you ever tried to kill a tree? We had a neighbor. We, we still have a neighbor. Nothing happened to the neighbor. There's a tree, though, in our neighbor's yard. We've had multiple neighbors in this house now over the years, and the first neighbor planted a fig tree back in the corner. And that fig tree grew up, and by God's grace and to my, my wife's delight, it dropped figs in our yard. I didn't really care for the tree, so I prayed things for that tree, thought things about that tree, and hoped things for that tree. And I came up with ideas in my head about that tree, but that tree was in my neighbor's yard. And one day, as an answer to my prayer, I believe, that neighbor decided to cut down their fig tree. Months later, it seemed like, as if God has a wonderful sense of humor, that tree was there like it had never been cut down with more figs. And that tree got cut down again and it grew up again, and it got cut down again, and it grew up again, and finally God has provided us with a neighbor that we have. And I haven't seen it for a long time. Well, that's what man's like, he says. Look at 14 verse 10. You see trees sprout up and they smell water. But a man dies and he's laid low. Man breathes his last, and where is he? As waters fail from a lake, and a river 
waste away and dries up, so a man lies down and rises not again. Till the heavens are no more, he will not awake, nor be roused out of his sleep. As long as the heavens exist, you put a man in the ground, he doesn't come up. Trees might sprout when they smell water, but Job knows people stay dead. You've got Zophar saying the only hope of the wicked is to die. And you've got Job reflecting, well, death it is. Death is the end. Might be an escape, but what is an escape to? It's an escape to death. You don't come out of death. You don't don't escape death, right? Job begins to imagine. Chapter 14, verse 13. To God he says, Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol in the place of the dead that you would conceal me in your wrath. You would conceal me until your wrath be passed. That you would appoint me a set time. You'd send me down in the shield, give me a set time, and then you would remember me. Now here's a question from Job. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service, I would wait. All the days of being in the grave, I would wait until my renewal should come. If it were possible... You would call me even down in shield. You would call me and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands. Then you would remember my steps. You would not keep watch over my sin. You would remember my steps. You would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression, Job says, would be sealed up in a bag, like a bag of death. All my sin would be sealed up in a bag and you would cover all my iniquity. If I could go down in Sheol and you would remember me there. It's like a dream for Job. You can almost hear Job sighing as he imagines the possibility. Oh, that I could go hide in the grave where, you're, where I go to die until your wrath is gone. And, and then I could come back out. And wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be great? Wait until death, Job says. I would wait until death in verse 14 until... His renewal. The word for renewal is the same word that he used for that tree sprouting. It's the same word for sprout in verse 7. Job is saying, God, if you would take me into death, and I would wait for you to make me spring up like a tree again. Could you imagine such a thing? Could you imagine such a thing? That you were to die and still live? England minister Glenn Scrivener explores the idea. He says, we already live in a life after death kind of world, so it isn't that different to believe in life after death, Lord. We already have everything from nothing. We have Jesus from the virgin birth. We have the universe from a virgin birth of the cosmos. And without a virgin. Everything has come from nothing. Life has come from non-life. I, as a Christian, believe the non-living Jesus came to life. But he says, listen to the story that's told of origins of life on the earth, that everything has emerged from non-life. We already believe that life has come from non-life. We already live in a world where life from non-life is a matter of science. It's not so crazy for Job to think about, is it? Every year the leaves on a tree die, but then they renew again in the spring. 
Job sees a little sprout coming out of a stump and just thinks, man, I wish I could be like that too. Job chapter 14, verse 18 through 22. It's a wonderful imagination. Job clearly just doesn't know about Jesus. He began in chapter 14 talking about everyone dying. He imagined this possibility, but then he comes to this place. But the mountain falls and crumbles away. The rock is removed from its place. The waters wear away the stones. The torrents wash away the soil of the earth. So you destroy the hope of a man. You prevail forever against him. That means he goes into the grave, he doesn't come back. That he passes, you change his countenance and you send him away. You go to the grave, this is what it's like. The man's sons come to honor him, the man in the grave doesn't even know it. They're brought low. They come and they're sad and they're brought low and the man in the grave, he doesn't even know. He perceives it not. Here's the only thing the man knows. The pain of his body when he was alive. That's it. He mourns only for himself. So far, you want to play around with theology and say you deserve worse than you are getting and act like you found some wonderful secret knowledge. Well, how about this? Death comes for us all. How's that? How, how's this, Zophar? The only way for the wicked to escape is death. Well, this is the end of every man. You're going to go to the grave. Your kids are going to come visit you. You won't even know they're there. Think about it. That's the end, Zophar. It's like for a minute, Job had a little taste. He had a little picture of life on the other side of death, and he lost it. He's brought back to the reality of the grave. And here's what I want to say to you today. Job didn't know about Jesus, but you can. Job asked a wonderful question in chapter 14, verse 14. Here's Job's question, his imagination, his what if. If a man dies, shall he live again? Jesus' answer is, I can What do you think the Bible is about? What do you think Christianity is about? It's about Jesus raising from the dead and promising eternal life to anyone who unites themselves to Him through faith. And it's that. Jesus is that. Or the Bible and the gospel is nothing. Jesus rose from the dead as a man and son of God, or the whole Bible is worthless, pointless, useless. That's the center hope of the entire. Bible and the good news of Jesus that he rose from the dead that he has the keys to the escape room of the tomb 
Mark chapter 5, in Jesus' life, a little girl is sick. Jesus doesn't make it in time to heal her. He gets to the house anyway. Jesus speaks to the little dead girl. Little girl, arise! Mark 5.42 says, And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. John 11, Jesus didn't make it in time to heal his good friend Lazarus. Jesus told his sister, however, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And then Jesus went over to Lazarus' grave and spoke these words toward the tomb. Lazarus, come out. And they moved the stone and Lazarus walked out. In Luke 7, Jesus was coming into a town with a great crowd following him and coming out of the same town was a funeral with a great crowd following the funeral. And it was a widow. And in that box was the widow's only son. Luke gives the account like this. Jesus came up and he touched the casket. And the pallbearer stood still and he said to the man in the casket, young man, I say to you, arise. Luke says, the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. And unlike what it might have been like if Zophar was there, Luke 7, 16 says, fear seized them all. Job asked the question, the little girl dies, will she live again? Jesus answers, if I raise her, Job asks, if our friends die, can they live again? Jesus says, if I speak to the grave and tell them to come out. If a widow's son dies, how can that woman escape her suffering? If Jesus touches the casket and tells the son to wake up. How about this? In Matthew 16, they realize that Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus tells them he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the chief priests and the elders and be killed and that he himself will rise on the third day. And then what happened? Jesus went to the cross. He died on the cross. He was buried by his disciples, guarded by the Romans, went into the tomb. When his disciples came to find him, there was an angel from heaven saying, He's not here, but he is risen. Remember how he told you that while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of the sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. But what's the point of Jesus raising from the dead? That the wicked have a way of escape. Here's the whole point of why Jesus needed to rise from the dead. That us who are wicked and who deserve death, who deserve what Jesus took for us on the cross, that those of us who deserve it do not have to think that God is going to give us finally the death that we deserve, but will forgive our sins through Jesus' blood on the cross and will grant us eternal life through Jesus who rose Himself. Finding your way out of an escape room for fun is one thing. Finding your way out of the suffering that you are in today through medicating yourself through alcohol and sex and money and your job is another thing. Finding your way out of all of your suffering 
to just get it to stop and go away by dying is one thing. The hope of the gospel is you can escape the wages for your sin which you deserve through Jesus Christ crucified for your sin and raised from the grave. He is the escape from sin and death. Jesus has, as it were, gone into the tomb of death and broken a wall out. And let us all know, this is the way. I'm the way. My death for your sin, my resurrection from the grave, is your escape. This happens to us spiritually and physically. Colossians 2 says, You were once dead in your trespasses, but through the forgiveness of the cross, God canceled the record of debt against your sin, so that what you deserve has been canceled. It's been wadded up, it's been thrown away, it's been burned. That, that whole record was nailed to the cross. So that what you deserve is not what is due you anymore if your faith is in Jesus. God has searched you out. God has searched us out. He knows our sin. But for all who put their faith in Jesus Christ, their sin is nailed to the cross. And God, when we put our faith in Jesus, makes us alive together with Christ. Spiritually first. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, there's heavenly bodies and there's earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly bodies of one kind, the glory of the earthly body, that body that you and I have, it's another kind of glory. In fact, it's a much lesser glory. I'm 41 years old. My kids wanted me to play tennis with them last three nights in a row. The earthly body is a lesser glory, if you know what I mean. There's one glory of the sun, another kind of the moon, another glory of the stars, for the stars differ from star and glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised, Jesus from the grave, is imperishable. The older you get as a Christian, if you grow in doctrine, you grow in faith forward, you look to actual resurrection. Because you know this body is going to the grave and there's no escaping it. I can go to the doctor a thousand times, but it's coming. If you're young and you're feeling good and you run four miles a day, just know it's going to wear out. It's coming. And there's no reason to live with underlying panic and anxiety as if you are forever stuck in the suffering of your own sin or whatever suffering God might place you in. There's no reason to live like that. The life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus is the way out. Our spirits are renewed now through Christ and the Holy Spirit. Our bodies will be in the resurrection to come. Church, maybe if you're an unbeliever even, go read your Bible this week. In the Bible, God is revealing the hope of resurrection through Jesus all through the Bible. When you get to the Bible, you learn. We learn to fear God and tremble before Him and then to be thankful for Christ. And this is how Jesus summarized all of Scripture. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. That's what Scripture is saying. And that repentance of the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all the nations. It's not about being better. It's about recognizing your sin, trusting Christ. So keep evangelizing on the UT campus. Keep sharing the gospel with your dad. Keep faith in God through cancer, through physical infirmities. Remember there is a way out of every suffering and sin in this world, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. Keep forgiving your spouse over and over. 
Endure the suffering that God has allotted for you. Endure it. God might want you to suffer more than you are suffering now in your life. There's a greater way out than getting a comfortable life. There's a greater way out than escaping to death. It's having your sins forgiven and through Christ have eternal life. Zophar accused Job, the wicked man only hopes to die. And Job imagined, what if a man could live on the other side of death? And Jesus tells us, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And Jesus walked out of his own grave, escaped. And he is alive today. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for your Son, Jesus Christ, whom you sent to the earth to die for our sins, to suffer in our place what we so clearly deserve because of our sin in light of your holiness. Jesus died. He died and his blood pays for our sin. He rose from the grave that death might be conquered and defeated, that we might find our way out of it. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, Jesus Christ is the one true hope in life and death. Father, I pray for any other escapes that we've been trying, that you would help us this week recognize their weakness, their inability to actually help us get out of suffering and even be pardoned for our sin. Help us actually find joy explicitly, truly in Jesus Christ, crucified for us, resurrected for us, living today. Father, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.